Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this day, and even though we've heard this text so many times throughout our lives, we ask that right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak a fresh new truth into our lives, so that, Lord, we would walk the lives you've called us to, the abundant, looking forward and fulfilling life, bearing fruit in our day. And I ask, Lord, you would think our thoughts, that your words would be mine, that you would bend all our wills to your will, and you would take every single one of our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, you hear about it in the hymns that we sing. Uh, you hear about it in the old gospel songs in particular, Shall We Gather at the River? You know, many of you remember that song. It's a gospel heritage. Uh, it even has crept into country music and pop music. I mean, Carrie Underwood, two years ago, did a song called There Must Have Been Something in the Water. Bad theology, Carrie. <laughs> you know, she's singing. She, it's actually, there's parts of the song, you know, it's about a changed life, yes, but it wasn't in the water, girl. Okay, you just, you just, we need to talk. But the country has quirky theology, as catchy as some of these songs are, and as we revisit this, as we do annually with the baptism of Jesus, because all four Gospels talk about this text, we're going to clear up the fog. So I encourage you to open up with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, because what we do as we take a little deeper look at this event, we see, number one, the importance of Jesus' baptism, the importance of prayer for each and every one of us, and we see confirmation of God's existence. All right? Those are the three big things that going on in Luke's uh, capturing this passage. The importance of Jesus' baptism, the importance of prayer for each and every one of us, and the confirmation of God's existence. Let's look at this. First, the importance of Jesus' baptism. There's just very little verses, you know. Luke's description of Jesus' baptism is rather sketchy. Uh, verse 21 in Luke's Gospel. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized. That's about it. Okay? He gives no details of the location. He, not even the size of the crowd. Neither does he shed any light on the question of why Jesus was baptized. So therefore, if you want to know a few more details, you've got to go to Matthew, Mark, or, or even John. Now, the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. But Jesus, being sinless, clearly had no need of repentance. So let's look at some other perspectives. Matthew 3, verse 13 then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was utterly righteous. Paul called him our righteousness. Jesus himself is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 
he had fulfilled all manner of righteousness up to this 30 years. Utterly righteous. Moral righteousness, legal righteousness, spiritual righteousness. He was sinless. And as such, he had no need to undergo John's baptism of repentance because he was completely righteous. But he did undergo baptism. Why? Because as the embodiment of righteousness, he purposely identified with the righteous actions of his people. Jesus did not come to John to confess his sins, of which he had none. He came to make himself one with those who did submit to baptism in order to fulfill all the law required. Okay, you with me? So once John understood this, he acquiesced and he baptized Jesus. And Jesus, outwardly appearing like any old Joe, you know, no different from the multitudes that were there, was baptized in the Jordan River. So from the crowd's perspective, this was an ordinary baptism. But from heaven's perspective, there's a lot more going on here. In the next few moments, as Jesus ascended the banks of Jordan, as he went up from the water, says Matthew, God in the fullness, Father and Holy Spirit, descended upon and celebrated God incarnate in Jesus Christ. That's the importance of Jesus' baptism. Well, let's look at the importance of prayer. Because the next thing that Luke records for us, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, it says, Jesus was praying. Certainly, Jesus was a person who prayed without ceasing, but there were also times and places where he prayed publicly and more earnestly and more passionately, and this is one of them, along with other places throughout Scripture. So John the Baptist and other onlookers and observers notice an attitude of adoration and worship in Jesus and submission and dependence upon the Father that other people didn't have, and he was praying. So you think about it. He's 30 years old. He's gone through 30 winters of absolutely living a perfect life unto the Father. An attitude of fervent prayer. He's now ready to go public as the Son of God. You know, it's clear in the Gospels that Jesus prayed passionately, you know, and I think it's a real clear lesson for us in our prayer lives, my friends. Do we desire the blessings of God? Do we desire the blessings of the Holy Spirit? Affirmation from God? Power to see God move throughout our lives and experience God? we got to pray. James said, you have not because you ask not. And so God blesses this baptism and hence a life that is accompanied by prayer. Just pouring water over a baby's head is insufficient. Putting the baby in a pretty gown is not sufficient. Saying the right prayer book right over anybody whether a baby, a young person, or an adult, in and of itself, is not sufficient. 
None of those alone convey the grace of God. There must be the prayer accompanied with authentic trust in Jesus Christ, with a willingness to follow this Jesus Christ. So, I mean, I think it does beg that question, you know, why is, are so many people baptized and yet there's so little belief? If it's so powerful, why do we see so many people in our culture it hasn't affected their lives whatsoever? Because it wasn't accompanied with true prayer. It wasn't accompanied with authentic faith. I mean, the early church wouldn't let anybody be baptized for three years. You had to go through discipleship and walk with the church for three years. You were dismissed at the peace, and you went to discipleship class for three years. And then you were allowed to be baptized, and then your kids could be baptized. Think about it. Three years. See, there's really no rush. So that's why we've instituted the changes throughout the Anglican Church in North America, that if a person wants to be baptized or a child to be baptized or con confirmed, which is basically opposite sides of the same coin, right? Really? Walk with us. Walk in the promises that you're going to make in front of 200 people, right? And then we'll set a date. And so we see there's no rush, but the absolute necessary aspect of prayer being accompanied with true faith. So that's the second thing we see. But third, we see three confirmations of God's existence when the Heavenly Father speaks from heaven. Three things happen here in this last passage in verse 21. Or 22, rather. The heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, and a voice came from heaven, right? All confirming, you don't need to wonder whether God exists here, my friends. Because this experience right here in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's look at this. First, the heavens open. Mark's parallel account is rather dramatic. Verse 10 of chapter 1 of Mark. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. I think Hollywood could do a pretty good job with this. Have the fingers go through the sky. You know? I don't know if that's what happened, but, you know, the heavens are being torn open. And they see it. The crowd sees this. In any event, the skies above the Jordan were supernaturally open dramatically. As they are elsewhere in Scripture, it happened for Ezekiel. It happened for John, it happened for Stephen as he was being martyred, it happened to Peter, it happened to John as he was receiving his revelation. And so as the gathered crowd also saw the heavens opened and were absolutely stunned, because John writes that in chapter 1 of his gospel, apparently they see everything happening here. And what happens is, the Spirit descends, and their eyes are focused upward on the torn sky, and the multitudes watched as the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. The Holy Spirit gave the crowd a visible, tangible descent. 
And Matthew gives us Jesus' perspective. He saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove coming to rest on him. And John gives John the Baptist's perspective. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. John 1.32. So thus, coming from the open sky, the Holy Spirit flutters down and descends upon Jesus, resting upon him, signifying that the Holy Spirit had come upon him and anointing him, and he would never depart. Nothing like this had ever happened before. Ever. This is huge, my friends. And nothing had ever been used to symbolize the Holy Spirit ever before like a dove. It's a dove. I mean, I prefer bald eagles. Why a dove? Though Jesus would baptize with Holy Spirit and with fire, as we heard read, right? That's what John said in Advent. There's a, a crossover from Advent. Do you see what the lectionary did? I wanted to remind us about John's ministry because it's being handed off now. He's going to baptize us with Holy Spirit and with fire, signifying the refiner's fire. Getting rid of the things that hurt our walk with him. Giving us the Holy Spirit. But the gentleness of a dove suits the tone of Jesus' ministry in our lives. Both among them and us. Never before had a dove been used this way. Though Jesus would baptize with this, this is Jesus' actual ministry of reconciliation. Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan theologian of Magdalen College in Oxford, explains it this way. All apparitions that God at any time made of himself were not so much made to show men what God is in himself as to show us how God is affected toward us and declare what effects he will work in us. For a dove, you know, is the most meek and the most innocent of all birds, without gall, without talons, having no fierceness in it, expressing nothing but love and friendship to its mate in all its carriages, and mourning over its mate in all distresses. And accordingly, a dove was a most fit emblem of the Holy Spirit that was poured out upon our Savior when he was just about to enter the work of our salvation. For as sweetly as a dove does converse with other doves, so may every sinner in Christ converse together. Isn't that beautiful? That's Jesus' work in our lives, my friends. He's gentle. He meets you in your need. And to be sure, Jesus was and is a lion, yes. His divine righteousness scorched the Pharisees and will return as a warrior to judge the living and the dead. But his ministry in our lives is uncharacteristically gentle. He said, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He also pronounced this beatitude. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. One of the characteristics of a genuine follower of Christ is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. What's one of the fruit of the Spirit? 
gentleness, that we're gentle people. Jesus enjoined all of us to be innocent as doves, Matthew 10. So the Holy Spirit came down to Jesus. Jesus began his gentle ministry. And my friends, he wants to continue that tender work in each and every one of our lives today. The third confirmation of God's existence is the Father speaks. And the first two manifestations at Jesus' baptism were visual. Heaven's opened. Holy Spirit comes down. And the third is a voice. And so it was verbal. And a voice came from heaven and says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. These are two direct quotes from Scripture spliced together. The first quote is from Psalm 2. It is on Messiah's unique father and son relationship on which would be the basis of Jesus' rule. His messianic rule. Luke deliberately showcases the radical dynamics of Jesus' relationship with the Father as ruler and reign. Remember, Gabriel had said to Mary that you would call him the Son of God. Luke deliberately showcases that. And as such, this Son of God had miraculous power to heal, to turn water into wine, to heal the sick, to do great work supernaturally and feed the crowds. And then the father testified that the son spoke on his behalf. We'll see that in Luke 9.35, but in 10.22, Jesus says, No one knows who the son is except the father, or who the father is except the son, and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So as God's son, he's enjoying a unique, beautiful relationship with the Father, with power and authority. But the context of Psalm 2 emphasizes above all his kingly reign. If you have it in your Bibles, you can turn with me. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. As a dove, his ministry was gentle. And as the eternal incarnate son, he is uniquely related to the father. Because he is king of kings and lord of lords, his iron scepter will crush the raging nations who oppose him. Those who are wise will bow down and worship Jesus Christ. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. But oh, blessed are those who take refuge in him, this dove. And the second scriptural allusion is a direct quote from our Old Testament reading that Sybil read for us. Isaiah 42, verse 1. With you I am well pleased is a reference to Isaiah 42, 1 and Jesus' suffering Messiahship. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. 
He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. That's Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. And this portrait is most clearly expressed in Isaiah 53, speaking of the suffering Messiah foreshadowing the cross. With you I am well pleased, the thunderous voice says. I mean, that begs the question, what's he pleased with? Well, I think there's a, a retrospect pleasing. First, in retrospect, the father is pleased with his son's humble incarnation. And these past 30 years where Jesus was Mr. Fixit of Nazareth. He was the carpenter. He was responsible. He lived a humble seclusion in Nazareth. He had been responsible head of the household because Joseph had died. So he had to set up the carpentry shop and lived in the backwoods of Nazareth. Even after he began the great works of ministry, he was still just a carpenter among his townsfolk. Isn't this the carpenter? You know, Bill the plumber? You know, this well pleased the father. The 30 years that this carpenter immersed himself in scripture was a great man of prayer. His inner devotional life was unparalleled. It was perfect. Kent Hughes says it this way, 30 years of unparalleled meditation, unparalleled prayer, unparalleled communion with his Father and the Holy Spirit, as he grew in his comprehension of who he was and what he was to do, this too well pleased the Father. So, during these silent, ordinary years, Jesus was being shaped into the second Adam that we needed. And he took that righteousness to the cross for each and every one of us. And there he died in our place, the just for the unjust, as Paul says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So now by faith we receive this righteousness as a gift. So after 30 years, the father is very pleased with all that he's done. And secondly, that's the retrospect, but in prospect of his son's going to the cross, please the father. So as Isaiah 53 recounts the sufferings of the Messiah, verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The entire Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are present here, my friends. And it pleased for Jesus to work out our salvation upon the cross. And on the occasion of Jesus' strategic baptism, it was the second person of the Godhead who came out of the waters in fervent prayer. It was the third person who descended upon him in bodily form like a dove to anoint him and empower him for the work he's going to do. And it was the first person who spoke and said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. God in his completeness rejoicing 
as Jesus now launches his ministry, revealing himself to all the world. I don't know about you, but there is something deeply comforting in this. It demonstrates how powerfully God works for our redemption and also for the mutual work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's a mystery. And all three persons are equally concerned for the deliverance of our soul. It is little wonder that Paul later confidently proclaimed, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. See, no person is so far gone. No person is too low or too high. No person is so far gone to escape the hope that is found in Jesus Christ because the Trinity disagrees with them and says, you're not too far gone. You might have screwed up multiple and created a great relational quagmire of all your relationships. And you think you're beyond his understanding and grace. No, you're wrong. The Trinity delights to save the unsavable. That's what this revelation is all about, my friends, and it should bring joy to our hearts and our souls of lives that are striving to ground every aspect of our lives in the reality of this truth of the gospel. Because Jesus' work is well-pleasing. So we have a hope and a future because of this well-pleasing Son of God. Let's trust in Him and trust His work and know that it's in that work the hope for today and tomorrow and for eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ and that you have revealed yourself in Him and it's in him as he was baptized, this righteous work was beginning to fulfill the righteousness so that as we are baptized in these great truths, we're identified as righteous, Lord. And we thank you. We pray that you would make us a, a people of prayer, deep, abiding relationship prayer, not merely going through the motions, but seeking to use the scripture to guide us in it each and every day of our lives. And we never again have to wonder, does God exist? But you came. You tore open the sky. You came down and you anointed our Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, and empowered him to do this great work for us. And it's in you we are well-pleasing to the Father. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, continue to reveal yourself to us as we walk through this Gospel of Luke. And may we never Lose the wonder of this carpenter who walked faithfully ordinary life in Nazareth those 30 years. May we be faithful unto you. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.